This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Matt Dodge. So he is the CEO and co-founder of Cigars.com. That's Cigars with an S at the beginning, S-I-G-A-R-S.com. That is an online marketplace specializing in custom cigars. And he's also a former NFL and UFC athlete agent based out of Miami, Florida. So the cool thing about him is how we got connected. So Folds of Honor, which is an organization that helps pay for the schooling, the future schooling, the higher education of fallen first responders and military members families they hooked me up with Matt because I was looking for some cigars for me and Folds of Honor did some cigars with them and then after you know a short conversation with them it's like wait I, I think Undaunted Life should do a cigar and I wanted to kind of go to help fund you know anti-child trafficking organizations ones that are you know really vetted and do a really good job and so that ended up getting us in the door with the Tim Tebow Foundation again shout out to Joby Martin of Church of 1122 for hooking us up with the Tim Tebow Foundation and so we found them and their rescue team and the stuff that they're doing and so we partnered on doing a cigar. So if you listened, you know, however long ago it was, a few weeks ago or something like that, I announced that we had that partnership. A lot of you guys have gotten on board and ordered these cigars. We're so thankful to you guys because we kind of needed to prove the concept like, hey, would guys that even don't smoke cigars, would they pay for a three pack or a box of cigars, you know, just because they know the money's going directly to preventing children from being, you know, put into trafficking, you know, rescuing them sometimes in kinetic situations, rescuing them from that, but then also caring for them afterwards, you know, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, like socially, just caring for these children and these adults that have been caught up in trafficking. And so you guys responding and buying these cigars is a big deal. Cause I know cigars aren't everybody's cup of tea. Like, you know, some, some of you have never had them. Some of you think they're even sinful, even though they're not like, it's just one of those things that's very awesome to see you guys show up and show out and buy the Undaunted Life cigar. So again, if you're interested in getting on board with that, we'll put it in the show notes, but it's undaunted.life backslash cigars. And we partnered with cigars. We we partnered with Matt Dodge to do this. But in this particular interview, the first 30, 35 minutes or so, we talk about how he became an NFL agent and some of the stories and behind the scenes stuff there. And then we talk about his time as a UFC agent, and how that's different. You know, in the NFL, you have to have licenses and all these hoops you got to jump through. But with the UFC, it's kind of like the wild wild west we talked about you know when they brought in usada we talked about whenever they made it to where you couldn't have sponsorships on your shorts because of the reebok deal we even talked about you know our different um you know, Mount Rushmore's and who we would put on there. And I've kind of changed my Mount Rushmore a few times over the last few months, but I feel like I've got a solid MMA Mount Rushmore now. And and he actually told me a story about some kind of dirty stuff some fighters were doing in terms of weight cutting. So you got to stick around for that story. And then we transition into talking about cigars. Why does he want to do custom cigars? It was actually a UFC fighter that got him into that business. Why is that so lucrative? Why is that so interesting? What's their process? So if you're a company or an individual or a nonprofit that's wanting to do cigars, how is it that you could do something like that with an organization like this that has that you know, heart for serving and for providing money to these, you know, charities and things like that. And they, they match the dollars that you're putting in to go to that charity and all those types of things. But then we talk about cigars in general, like, you know, if you've never had a cigar, like what, what should you consider whenever you're trying to do one, uh, you know, uh, trying to, you know, either make a cigar or smoke a cigar for the first time, what are mistakes that people make when they smoke cigars or, you know, when they're lighting it or cutting it or all those different things. And he even told me about some things and I've been smoking cigars for a couple of decades. Like that I didn't even know. I was like, Oh man, that, that's pretty awesome. I say a couple of decades. That would make, <laughs> that would mean I've been you know smoking them when I was a teenager. I definitely wasn't, but I've been smoking them for a long time, maybe since college or whatever. But I really, really enjoyed my time with him. The dude's got a great heart 
heart for for this business and also for taking care of people. You know, just to, to peek behind the curtain, the the morning that our cigars launched on September the seventh, there was an issue on the back end of their store. And it wasn't their fault because they tested it the night before and blah, blah, blah. But there was like a third party vendor that had some sort of a glitch and it was causing people to not be able to fulfill their orders. And it was kind of a crazy situation. And, you know, it was kind of like, man, what's going on? And these people are really trying to get on there and they're trying to be patient. This guy, Matt Dodge, took time out of his life and out of his schedule to personally contact everyone that tried to put in an order and wasn't able to do it because of the glitch. That wasn't his fault. This is the CEO of the company. Like he's got things that he needs to do, things that he can be doing with his time. And here he is contacting you guys, the supporters of Undaunted Life, because he wanted to make sure to make this situation right so that you could get your product and so that we could support the Tim Tebow Foundation. That's what you need to know about Matt Dodge. So without further ado, let's get into it. Matt Dodge, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you, Kyle. It's good to be here. Well, hey, uh, to give everyone a little peek behind the curtain, you and I have actually spoken a lot today because uh, you and I are in business together selling some cigars, which we'll talk about a little bit later on today. We had a few snafus, so we, we've gotten a lot of each other uh, this week, but I don't even want to talk about that. I think this is a new record for Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. I've never had somebody with palm trees swaying in the background in the breeze, and that's never happened before. Where are you shooting this today? Yeah, I am shooting this in Miami, Florida, which is where we hand-rolled uh, the cigars for Undaunted Life. Well, that is pretty exciting that you, is this like your office? Is this like what you get to look at and look like every single day? Because that's, it. please tell me no, because that makes me feel bad. This is my office, yes. Um, the, I'll tell you what will make you feel a little bit better. I look at a closet. You get to look at this when I look at a closet in front of me, so... Well, you know what? We can get you some Ikea furniture, move you around, like kind of switch you around a little bit. But like I said, I, I definitely, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the cigar game a little bit later. But it's very interesting about your story is, you know, a few years ago, you didn't really know that cigars was going to be a big part of what you're going to be doing for your career because you were actively an agent for NFL players and for UFC fighters. And so I would say that most of us that follow sports, which there's a lot of guys in this audience that do, we're kind of tangentially aware of agents, right? You know about Scott Boris and you know about, you know, uh, some of these random people that, you know, that they like the microphones and then they've got all the big clients and they get these, you know, nine figure deals for their people and they do all these other different things, but, or they've watched Jerry Maguire or, you know, that's like their ex extent of their knowledge of this. But to start from the beginning, why were you even attracted to that as kind of a, a career path? And how does one, if there's a teenager listening to this, and I know there's several of them, and they want to go down this route and they think it's all just, you know, sexy stuff and Super Bowls, like what what does it actually look like to work that kind of a job? Yeah. So for, for me, when I was a kid, um, I was always interested in sports, but in a different way. I mean, I enjoyed playing sports, but I wasn't like a premier athlete in any of the, the large major sports, right? So when I was a kid and people were outside playing or playing video games or things of that nature, I was playing the video games with the general manager. <laughs> so I kind of liked to be behind the scenes, putting the pieces together, scouting, understanding like who that next talent was and being able to develop that and see that through. So I had this kind of just innate interest in in development and growth in sports. And I cared much more about being behind the scenes than I did about being out in front, like the Jerry Maguire's and, and Scott Boris's, as you mentioned. So for me, I always knew I wanted to be close to sports. I just didn't know how it was going to, to happen. And I 
you know, realized that I could put some of, you know, what I, what I've worked for and, and kind of go out and get some, some experience by, by doing some internships. And that story is interesting because um, really the internships, they're not going to really hire you too much, uh, especially if you don't have like a law degree. And I was a kid at this time. I was in, I was in undergrad school um, and I had to get on the phone and call every single agent there was. So if there's anyone who's young, who's listening right now, put yourself out there. Um, make yourself known, but also come to the table with something. I had a lot of calls to these agents and they just hung up on me. And one time I just said, you know what? I'm going to take a different approach. I called the agency. I said I was an athlete. I said I was a quarterback for the University of Connecticut. And I got on the phone with one of the agents and I immediately told him, hey, that's not who I am, but I want an opportunity. Next day I was on a train to the Bronx and I started my internship the following day. That's one thing that I tell people. So I've had a lot of people reach out to me for, you know, my show and they, you know, some people reach out to me because they want me to be their shortcut, which if, when you're asking someone for, for help, that's kind of what you're asking them to do is a shortcut. And all the advice I give to people is like, Hey, present yourself, honestly, like tell me exactly kind of what it is you need and what you want. But at the same time, it's like, don't just like assume that I'm going to hand you my Rolodex and don't just assume I'm going to hand you the keys to everything that I've learned and all the lumps that I've taken so that your life's easier. But like, you got to get creative to get in front of people, especially like for me, I'm trying to get interesting people on the show. And there are different ways of going about getting those people that are advantageous and that are more successful than just sending a DM and then praying and hoping that, you know, they actually get in there and respond. So it's one thing, Matt, to say, Hey, I'm going to be a sports agent. It's another thing to, you know, burn the ships as it were, say, this is my career. This is how I'm going to get, get stuff going. But like, how do you even get clients? Like, how do you get people to kind of believe in you that you're going to do your thing? So I guess just just pick up the story from where you left off. Yeah, it, listen, it's it's hard work and dedication and being creative. Creative. Um, mm. There are so many people who are reaching out to these top level athletes that um, if you don't have um, you know the funds to be able to attract them, um, you have to have something. So for me personally. The first client I ever had played football at the University of New Hampshire. As many of your listeners know, that is not a Division One powerhouse. Uh, nope. You don't even think they actually have a, a football team, but but they do. Um, yeah. I was fortunate enough to kind of kind of just stumble into some tape on this uh, linebacker who his name was Sean Ware, um, and immediately when I watched that tape. I knew that he was special. I knew he was different. He had that first step quickness. Um, he was he was small, but he was but he was strong. Like there were things that I could understand why he was overlooked by Division One schools. But in in this position, like he has the ability to if if enough people can look at him and give him a chance, he could be you know just as good as anybody else that's out there. And uh, spent a lot of time with him. Spent a lot of time with his family and signed him. And then we uh, we got him in front of a, a pro day. He ran the fastest 40 of anyone who wasn't invited into the combine uh, for his pro day. Ended up being a seventh round draft pick uh, to the Carolina Panthers. And that was just the start, right? That just kind of, I utilized that. And then once you have a guy, you kind of can can use that as a, as a launching off pad to then go out and find guys. So for me personally, it was to try to find that undiscovered talent, the people that you know, the, the guys that were being overlooked for various reasons and, you know, work really hard with them and give them an opportunity. Okay. I want to circle back around to that, but you mentioned 40 times now for every Megatron, you know, uh, Calvin Johnson that there is in the draft, they go in there and just light up the 40 and do all these other different things. You know, the, what are the, the three cone drill and all this stuff. 
every draft, there's that guy that runs a crazy fast 40. He puts up a crazy amount of reps on 225 bench. And then we never hear from this person again because they get to training camp or they get to whatever. Some of these guys get hurt, but a lot of them just suck at football. Like they're just really good at working out. And so like, it's always driven me insane. Like, and I know that, you know, people don't just base their draft boards on what happened, you know, at the 40 yard dash, at, you know, in Indianapolis or something like that. But to me, it always just seems crazy when you see these people that got drafted because they ran a four, three, but it's like, well, they, they don't know anything. They, they're not smart enough to memorize an NFL playbook or they, they just don't have what it takes. You know what I mean? Like kind of walk me through that. Cause I know that has to be frustrating on your end as well. Well, fortunately it worked in my favor in this, in this capacity, yeah. right? Right. Um, right? Because if not, he probably would have been overlooked. You know, a, a lot of times, especially from like a scouting standpoint or general manager, the people who make decisions for all 32 teams, um, a lot of them are old guard right? You're starting to see a little bit more new guard now, but old guard where the statistics and the measurables and, and all of that mattered more than, you know, their ability to play the sport. Um, so for, fortunately for us, I mean, that got him on the radar and then he, he impressed when he was at camp and gave him the chance. But yeah, I mean, look, those things, they matter to an extent, but you know, that's why camp matters. That's why mini camp and training camp matters yeah. because you've got to get out there and get hit. Right. You got to get put on the ground to figure out how you can, you know, compete with these other guys and, and, and really see if they've got that dog, especially uh, on the defensive side. You really have to have that because these are guys, especially like, you know, in, in first year guys that are getting drafted. Right. Many of them are 20 years old, 21 years old. They're playing guys who have been in the league for 10, 15 years, full grown men. Many of these are still kids, right? That have never paid a bill or their mom and dad still pay their, you know, their, their phone bill or something like that. Right. These, this is a, this is a wake up call uh, for a lot of them. So, you know, for, fortunately for us, it, it got him noticed and, and he was able to get through. So on the NFL side, who was like your biggest get like of your career? And well, it'll be a two part question. So who was your biggest get in terms of names that all of us would recognize? And then is there an NFL player that you just, man, you just love this person. They were just so good to work with, whether they, you know, had a big long career or not, but they were just, man, they were just a solid aces dude. I was able to work with Joe Horn for a little bit. Um, Joe Horn was wide receiver for the New Orleans Saints. Uh, I think Joe Horn got famous because of a lot of his antics when extra, he would, yeah, yeah little, little, little extra stuff. What was unique about Joe Horn is Joe Horn came uh, on my side uh, after. So he had already been with an agent and everything and um, wasn't happy with uh, a lot of the off the field opportunities that he quite honestly wasn't getting. So he, you know, came, came over on, on our side and, and we were able to work with him. He was probably the most fun. Um, but I was able to work with a long snapper uh, who had close to a 16 year career. So he even went beyond uh, the time that, that, that I was there and, and, and was working in the NFL space. It's interesting because a lot of these specialty positions uh, in the NFL, if you're really good at them, teams will keep hold of you for a very, very long time and pay you handsomely. Um, but I'll also say this, it's very important to get off the field opportunities, right? Uh, anybody can you know, put your statistics up against anybody else and say, okay, this person got paid X, this person was slightly better, pay him a little bit more, right? It doesn't require a whole lot of rocket science to be able to do that part of the job well. You have to be able to bring opportunities off the field from a marketing and endorsement and sponsorship standpoint. Okay. So at what point do you start getting into representing UFC fighters? 
right after. So Sean Ware, who I just mentioned, um, near and dear to my heart, um, was approached by an agency after he uh, had a phenomenal year um, and they paid him a large sum of money to leave me and go sign with that agency. That's what small agents are up against, right? You work your butt off, you find a guy that nobody even had on their radar. You spend a lot of your money, a lot of your time to get them into be a position of, to, to be successful. And then, you know, that, that type of thing happens. When that happened, I really got an understanding, a true understanding of how this game worked. And it's because the NFL has been around a long time and a lot of the agents there, they control that process so much. So they wait for it. They wait for guys to get built up and then they throw them money and they take them and they sign them to bigger deals. I couldn't match that at the time. I was a young kid. Sean was actually older than I was at the time I was representing him. So I couldn't match that. From there, that was when the UFC just signed the deal with Fox and they were starting to do a lot of it just became a lot more mainstream and I'd always loved the UFC industry and I've always loved the sport. I've always loved watching it. And I said, you know what, this is an opportunity to go take what I learned here and, and move it in. And I transitioned over and I actually worked for the really one of the best agencies at the time who represented Johnny Hendricks, um, who's an Oklahoma guy. Um, and that was right around the time when he was fighting George St. Pierre for the title. So I got into the best UFC agency right from the beginning. And I got kind of, thrown right into the wolves there, but the experience I had with the NFL was really beneficial for that. So you mentioned the Johnny Hendricks GSP fight for my money. And we'll, we'll talk about this. I think that GSP is the greatest fighter of all time. I think he is the goat for a lot of reasons, but I still think he lost to Johnny Hendricks that night. I think you know, Johnny Hendricks got screwed on that decision, but you know, <clears throat> then USADA comes in and then all of a sudden Johnny Hendricks can't make weight anymore. And yeah, you know, we don't necessarily have to talk about that, but, um, so you, you get into the UFC side. How is that different from representing NFL players? Or is it basically it, the same thing? It's all, it's wild, wild west. Number one, you don't need to have any type of certification, right? So anybody can be in there. And I'm talking about anybody, okay. criminals, bad people, uh, you know, your best friend from high school all the way to your dad or your uncle, right? So there was just a lot of not great people in there. And it was pretty easy to stand out. I have to be honest, it, it was pretty easy. If you, if you ran things professionally, did things the right way, um, you know, came up with creative ideas, you had a great opportunity to represent good fighters, right? Um, whereas the NFL wasn't like that. I mean, you needed a, there a lot of hoops to jump through before you even got an opportunity there. Um, and the access uh, to talent was also different and unique because you can now open yourself up to international fighters. The UFC was signing a ton of international guys, right, from Brazil, Asia, you know, uh, and whatnot. And that was an untapped space, too. That was an opportunity for us to go to Canada and get a couple people and, and bring them in. So it was it, it, it felt like the wild, wild west and a lot of untapped we were kind of like gold mining in a sense. Um, and it was just the first movers, whoever was able to, to kind of move in first, show the value, do things the right way, really were able to stand out. Okay. So did you like the fact that it was wild, wild west? Cause some people like the kind of the craziness of that because of the potential of opportunities, but then other people are like, no, I want something that's a little bit more predictable. Where did you kind of land? 
I loved the wild, wild west at that, at that point, um, because I did things the right way. Right. I mean, I, you could see that there were shady people in the, in the space, uh, and there still are quite, quite a few, uh, in the space. Um, and you just avoided them as much as possible. It's about building a lot of the athletes up. So just like in you know, the Sean Ware story, it's about finding some guys that, you know, might be fighting on local regional circuits, giving them the right opportunities to get noticed and then moving them into the big show. Um, so it was important to make sure that who you were, you know, having those relationships with were protecting your athletes. That was the most important thing about all of this is making sure that like the matchups were good. Uh, they had insurance when they were fighting a lot of those things because it is wild, wild west. You got to be careful of, of a lot of that. Um, but I preferred it. I thought there was a lot of really amazing opportunities that otherwise wasn't presented to me with the NFL space. Okay. So you were there since you mentioned the GSP Johnny Hendricks fight <clears throat> in and around that time is when the UFC went from the wild, wild West as it pertained to sponsorships to in terms of inside the octagon, they had the Reebok deal. And so initially it was like one guy's wearing black trunks, the other guy's wearing white trunks and they expanded the colors. But a lot of these guys, you know, before that, when you watch old UFC fights, they're wearing board shorts that have 15 different sponsors on it. And one might be monster and the other one might be, you know, Bubba Gump, you know, plumbing company or something like that. And then they also had the big banner that they would put down and all that. And then that changed and that, that changed for a lot of people. And there were a lot of fighters that just hated that, frankly, because they couldn't really sell sponsorships since nobody was going to be able to see their company logo when the person is fighting. So talk to me a little bit about that. Like what were some of the pivots that y'all had to make in business whenever, you know, it was harder to sell these deals. It killed um, a lot of, a lot of these fighters, um, annual salaries killed it. It was the worst thing that ever happened to the fighters. Um, for sure. Johnny in particular was making a lot on a few of those sponsors that were there. Um, he was one that had the transition and then went Reebok and then retired. Right. Um, so it didn't affect him as much, but for a lot of these new guys, especially with social media now, if you had a huge following, you could, you could get hundreds of thousands of dollars for, for sponsorship ads. Now Reebok's a set it's a set plan, right? Depending on how many fights you are, you're in on the UFC, Reebok pays you. It's like tenure. Reebok pays you based on how many fights you're in. And it doesn't change for anybody. Everybody's the same, right? You come in at 15 and 0 into the UFC, it's your first fight, or you come in at 4 and 0 in the UFC in your first fight, Reebok's paying you both the same amount, right? And that's not- no, I think that's fair. the same now with the Venom deal. Now that they're with Venom, I think it's basically the same setup. Exactly right. Yeah. And there was a lot of lost opportunity, a lot of lost sponsorship for, for athletes. So what you have to do now is you have to do it off, you know, behind scenes, you have to do it on social media. You have to try to get those types of deals. What I will say is there are a lot of new partners now to the UFC where once it was considered a little barbaric and uh, that no one would watch it on a large mainstream scale. Uh, now you have really, really large, reputable companies that are getting involved. So you're seeing the logos that are you know, in the cage. A lot of them have partnerships with the UFC where they can reach out to the athletes that they like and they can do their own sponsorship deals with them. So you are starting to see a little bit more of that. But I'll say right after the transition, like right when it went to Reebok, it was really bad for the fighters. It's starting to get a little bit better now. Okay, so around that same time period, you bring in USADA. So this is, you know, United States Anti-Doping Agency. You know, this is around the time when Dana and the crew is trying to substantiate the sport like it needs to look better, you know, not kind of chaotic with all the sponsorships, but also we need to make sure these guys are clean because used to, you know, the 
you know, the, the testing, if you would even call it that it was an IQ test. It's like, Hey, are you dumb? Are you smart enough to not pass this stupid test? And then they started doing doping, but then you saw particular fighters, maybe one of which has already been named that they just fell off a cliff after USADA comes in absolutely fall off a cliff. Their bodies change before our eyes. I mean, you go from Uberim to kind of this chubby, you know, looking Overeem type thing. And now he's back to being Uberim. And there's a few fighters that kind of fell off. What was that like for you guys as well? Because it was kind of a, the, the worst kept secret in all of MMA that most of these guys were on the sauce. Most of your favorite fighters that you just love were absolutely on the sauce. And then USADA came in and it didn't just get rid of that. It made these guys just get a lot smarter at beating the test. But even to, to, to this day, there are guys that are doped that are inside the UFC competing into a guy like me who had to scrape and grind for everything that he's ever accomplished athletically. It, it, you know, it hurts my feelings as it were, but what was kind of the difference for you guys when USADA comes in and kind of changes some of the fighters that are fighting? Yeah. Um, I would say that, um, the fighters who were doing things like that, um, were not knocking on our door saying, when's my next fight? When's my next fight? Um, they were mm. trying to kind of clean, clean themselves a little bit, knowing that that could happen at any time. Um, testing is completely random though. Um, even though you might be in the testing pool, right. There's a possibility you don't get tested more than once a year. Right. So mm. it truly is luck of the draw for a lot of those guys. My job didn't change. Um, I'll say, fortunately enough, the people that I kind of represented and recruited, there was a level of um, human being that I kind of had like as my baseline. I'm not, not going to sign anybody who's lower than that baseline. And fortunately, the majority of those people, almost all of those people, um, never tested positive for anything like that or never had a conversation with me personally um, about that. Um, the one person who did, who I represented, turned out to be... Um, actually, believe it or not, a, a tainted supplement, um, which I'll tell you from a USADA standpoint, that we we fought long and hard and it found out to be a tainted supplement, but still got a six month suspension because he still tested positive. So they are not messing around. But one thing I will say about the testing itself, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, testing the team like USADA, it's just like the NCAA. They're understaffed, they're years behind. If you are really trying to cheat the system and you have, the people behind you who have resources to do it, uh, you're, 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 you're going to be able to do that for a little bit of time, but it comes with risk. Uh, and because if you do get caught and you get caught multiple times and there's particular supplements that you have career ending year plus bans, you know, and, and even if it's not, you're, even if you're not trying to cheat and it's a tainted supplement of some sort, multiple offenses will put you in a really, really tough spot. Well, and obviously it affects your income, but it affects your legacy as well. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't really consider. So like when TJ Dillashaw went down to 125 to fight Henry Cejudo, not only did he get knocked out, you know, cause he basically sucked all the water out of his body, couldn't rehydrate his brain. And he got real chinny all of a sudden you, he comes out that he used, uh, you know, the special type of thing that helped with, I forgot it was like increasing his red blood cell count and all this yep. kind of stuff. And then it's like, dude, you're one of the best 135 pound fighters on the planet. And then, you know, now you're tainted forever. And guys like Cody Garbrandt could just point at you and be like, I knew you were doping the whole time. You were, we were teammates and blah, blah, blah. And now there's no plausible deniability anymore because it's like, yeah, you, you kind of did. And then like in baseball, which is my favorite sport, 
you got these guys like Barry Bonds or Jose Canseco or Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa, and everyone's like trying to find the cutoff. Like, oh, when did Barry start doing this? Was he a Hall of Famer before that point? It's like, I'm sorry, you, you can't do that. You have to take someone's entire career. Kind of like when you get into the GOAT conversation and someone says, oh, well, Anderson Silva had the most dominant title run. Right, but he he fought a whole lot more than that, and he lost like every single fight for like seven years in a row or something like that. So it's like you, you really can't do it that way. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about um, – really how fighters are paid because I have a buddy and I that we, we debate, you know, often cause he's more so on the, you know, these poor fighters should get paid more. And I'm like, Hey, no one's forcing them to sign these contracts. Like if you want to be a UFC fighter and you're, you're saying no to all the other organizations that may allow you to, you know, get other sponsorships or provide you a better base pay or something like that. But it does strike people as odd, Matt, that a fighter can train for four months, get a fight and it's 10 and 10, right? 10 to show 10 to win or five and five or something like that. And you know, they don't really realize, Hey, they got to pay their coaches. They get, they got to pay for their gym that they're at. They got to pay their mortgage. They got child support. They got, you know, whatever paying for their family. And so it's not nearly as lucrative for most of the guys, but for the upper echelon guys, the people getting points on pay-per-view, like it's generational wealth and money. But then now you've got PFL, which is a thing, Bellator, which is maybe about to get bought by PFL. You've got one championship and there's a lot of other different options, but it's like the champion of one championship isn't considered in the same regard as the UFC champion. The PFL champion is never going to be considered in the same regard as the UFC champion. So I know there's a lot in there. I threw a lot out there at you, but I know you know this. This is your game. Talk to me a little bit about the money side because there's the prestige of the UFC belt, but then there's also the paying your bills part of this, you know? And that's what the UFC use, utilizes, right, to remain an incredibly profitable business. Right now, they're um, publicly traded, right? So now their books yeah. are open. So now the scrutiny can really, really happen. And this is where you see that they're paying, you know, fighters fifteen to eighteen percent of total revenue, right? When you have these other major sports that have revenue shares of fifty-fifty, right? Like mandatory revenue shares of fifty-fifty. Um, the problem is there's no union. There's no union in the UFC. There's no union across MMA, um, and Quite honestly, the organizations are going to fight that tooth and nail because they don't want to give 50% right, of a multi-billion dollar industry as long as they can control it. What the UFC has is the, the prestige. The UFC, as you just mentioned it, um, you want to be known as the best fighter in the world. You want to tell your buddies you fight. You want to fight for the UFC. Your buddies don't really give a shit if you go fight for Bellator or PFL. I would say the, the, the common fan does not know, unfortunately, those two organizations even exist. Um, granted, you could make a whole lot more money there, right? Because that's not their competitive advantage. They have to pay fighters to come over. But you're starting to see now, especially, I'd say in the last 12 months, especially, you're starting to see these guys from the UFC transition over to PFL or Bellator, I'll specifically say PFL because I do think Bellator will probably be acquired by PFL very soon. But that are getting um, that are moving over to PFL because of the security and protection for their families and you know what they've worked their whole lives for. They want to get paid. They're not just leaving anymore on three fight losing streaks. They're actually turning down contracts in the UFC and moving over. Shane Burroughs is a good good example for PFL, even though he hasn't had the greatest PFL run. Um, he was at the top. He was pretty, pretty darn high up at, at the, at the UFC and probably a ranked top 10 fighter and, and moved over. So the UFC utilizes that to their advantage. 
And it's up to the PFL, the one championships, the Bellators to continue to make a splash, get more of that market share so that the UFC is then forced to pay their guys a little bit more. But as long as they have that competitive advantage, it's going to stay the same. Well, and for me, and this is what I, I constantly tell my buddy is I say, again, they aren't being told that they have to sign this UFC contract with a gun to their head. They're choosing to do that because they want to do it. I never understood, you know, we're, you know, getting into the NFL season. You have these guys that are holding out. It's like, man, you signed a contract. I know that there are ways for you to get paid. <clears throat> That's advantageous for you. But it's like you signed a deal. And, you know, I think about these baseball deals. So specifically, um, you look at a deal. Okay, so what's a good example of this? Um, oh, Steven Strasburg. Okay, so wins the World Series for the Nationals. I believe that was 2019. And he's the World Series MVP. So this is a guy that kind of had an up and down career, number one overall pick. But then he he has the best performance he could possibly have. And he delivers a championship to Washington, D.C. And then he signs this huge contract, nine-figure contract. And I think he proceeded to pitch five more games. And just a few weeks ago, he announced his retirement. Well, he's guaranteed every last dime of that contract. So the Washington Nationals are taking all of the risk when they get a fighter. I feel like a lot of people want to see it from the athlete's perspective all the time because they like the athlete and they forget, look, this is a business and if the Nationals signed three of those contracts, it's going to be hard for them to ever sign another player, you know, five years from now or beyond. I feel like a lot of MMA fans <clears throat> get too caught up in the I like this guy and forget, hey, this is a business and the UFC can pay their fighters whatever the hell they want to pay them because they're running their business how they see fit. And until the the competition can actually formalize a better product, it's just going to stay that way. I mean, is that crazy to think of it that way? That's exactly right. Yeah. And what's unique for those who don't know this um, with fighting is you get paid to show and you get paid to win unless you're a champion. Uh -huh. Right. And if you're a champion, usually right. it's just show money. Um, and that bumps up big time. If you ever get an opportunity to fight championship level, you're making good money, um, even if you're challenging. So a lot of times, right, you fight. If you're lucky, you fight four times a year. You, let's say you lose all four of those, right? You're making half of what you should have made. And actually you're not even making that because you're not bumping up as you go through to this. So, you know, one thing is, you know, the guaranteed money, the guaranteed contracts, you're seeing that more with all these sports. It's like you're getting paid for what you've done in the past, not getting paid for what you're about to do. Whereas the UFC kind of pays you for what you're about to do, right? Um, yeah. Which I think is probably more in line, but with these major sports, the revenue sharing and all of this and the contracts getting bigger and the more value that the organizations have, the more value that the, uh, the leagues have because of the collective bargaining agreement that's built into it, they have to spend that money, right? It's not like they can not spend that money unless it's baseball, right? You can, you know, not spend your money, you, you, you pay for your team as whatever you want, right? But in like NBA, right? And if, like a lot of things you have to pay, you have to spend that money. Right. Yeah. I think it's very interesting when you look at it that way. Cause I'm kind of same thing. I don't have a whole lot of tolerance for people that complain about decisions that they've made. And so like, you know, here in Oklahoma, a lot of teachers were complaining about how much they were being paid. It's like, well, did you go to school to become a teacher? Yes. Yeah. Did, did you choose to, to finish your degree? Yes. Did you choose to apply for jobs to be a teacher? Yes. Did you choose to take those jobs? Did you choose to stay at those jobs? It's like, what are you complaining about exactly? Like, there's no surprise here. Same thing with these fighters that are like, Oh, I'm only making this much. It's like, you signed the deal. 
Like if you don't want to be a fighter, retire and, you know, go be a UPS driver, go sell insurance, go do anything else. So it's, you're not guaranteed a certain life uh, unless you go out there and get it. A couple more things before we move off and talk about cigars. Number one, I want some dirt. Okay. I want a story that no one's heard about on MMAfighting.com or on Ariel Hawani's show. I want to know something that happened behind the scenes, whether it's with one of your clients or something that you know about since you were kind of, you know, behind the scenes, seeing how things operate in the UFC. Give me a good story. Okay. Like for the guys that have been listening for a half hour, give them something good. Come on, Matt. There's a lot that happens behind the scenes. Um, what I'll say is this. Um, I won't say names or anything like that, but that's fine. What happens in weigh-ins is a little crazy. Okay. Um, there's a lot of cheating that goes on in weigh-ins. Okay. They say for anyone who knows kind of like real true MMA, they say that the fight is the day before, right? The fight is make, making weight when you're out yep. there actually performing. That's, that's different. That's, Look, that's that. A lot of times, it's luck of the draw, right? You can put your best foot forward, but if you get hit in the right spot, doesn't matter. You're going down, right? Um, or you make a mistake, you're going to get choked out, right? Those kinds of things happen. It's sometimes there's some 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 risky business that goes on behind the scenes with with weigh-ins. Either it's um, a little extra time, uh, maybe it's a little. Uh, you know, little games that are being played by other teams that um, that happen to, for the guys, I'll say one thing in particular. I'm not going to say names. Here's one story, okay? I knew a, a fighter who was able to get his opponent a room that the bath water would not get hot. Mm, that becomes cold. a problem when you're trying to take an Epsom salt bath. So if you can't take a hot bath with five hours left and you know you're about to drop all of that weight, right? You have to scramble, try to get out to a gym, do whatever you need to do, right? There are games like that that are being played regularly because if you miss weight, even by a 0.1 pounds, right? Um, at least 20% of your purse goes to that opponent. So if you, you know, plan that right, uh, that could be quite a lot of money uh, back into your purse uh, that's handled. So there are a lot of games, there are a lot of risky business that goes on before the fight even starts. All right. Very last MMA question. And then we, I promise we will transition to talking about cigars. I want your Mount Rushmore of your top four fighters ever. Now I'm going to give you a few caveats and I'm going to tell you mine to give you some time to think through this. Cause I'm kind of putting you on the spot. So this isn't necessarily who are the best four fighters ever. You can create whatever categories and matrix of decision-making to put people on there. Here's mine. Okay. And my last one's a little bit interesting and I've done this on some other shows here recently. So I've kind of figured it out. Number one is George St. Pierre. I think he is the greatest fighter of all time. I think, you know, his two losses to Matt Hughes and Matt Sarah, he erased those with dominant, dominant victories. Super guy inside the octagon, outside the octagon, total package. He's the GOAT. Then if I have no moral code whatsoever, no moral compass, I'll take John Jones. He beats up women. He's a horrific person. He hit a, you know, pregnant woman with a car and then took off running. But if America... We're going to have a fight with Russia. And instead of doing it how we do wars now, we did it like they did back in the Greek city-state days. And they're going to send one fighter and USA is going to send one fighter. I say put John Jones on all the supplements, all the vitamins, all the everything and send him and he's going to kill and behead whatever Goliath Russia has. So there's the second one, John Jones. The third one is the greatest star in the history of the sport. 
That's Conor McGregor. First double champ, his run to the belt from like 2013 to 2012, knocking out Jose in 13 seconds. I'm not sure we'll ever see something like that again. The UFC's desperately wanting to make Israel Adesanya and Sugar Sean O'Malley like Conor McGregor. They're not even close. They're not even on the same planetary orbit as Conor McGregor. Biggest star in the history of the sport. And here's the last one. Hickson Gracie. Now, most people might say, well, why not Hoist Gracie? He won the first couple of UFCs, like he's the, the first guy. It's because even at that time, Hickson was the dominant Gracie amongst all the Gracies. They sent Hoist out there because he was smaller, diminutive, you know, he was easier to control, whereas Hickson was the family champion. And so if Hickson were fighting in a modern MMA context, more people would know his name and more people would kind of put him in that upper echelon of the best of all time. So there's my four. I've got, what was it? GSP, John Jones, Conor McGregor, Hickson, Gracie. So I've given you your time. Give it to us. Let's go. I, I love it. Um, I wish the Gracies were good now, right? The problem is the Gracies yeah. just there. Everything they, everyone they put forward. Oh. Yep. Everyone they put forward is just, ugh, it's pretty hard to yeah, watch. Crone Gracie's last fight was one of the worst things I've ever seen in, an, in, in a fight ever. Quite sad to even be out there and representing the UFC in that. Right. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. Um, I won't use any of yours, okay? Um, but I okay. will use, I, I'm going to say that I do think the GOAT is GSP as well. Um, so I want to say that like, if I did have a Mount Rushmore, GSP 100% would be there because of the entire package. He represented himself, the organization, his country, his fight style. He was the most well-rounded fighter I think I've ever seen. Um, so he's kind of at the top of that. So outside of that, I'm going to start older for a second. Not old, but older for a second. Um, and the reason he's on my Mount Rushmore is because he was somebody who, when I was kind of growing up, that I thought was the baddest man on earth. And that's Chuck Liddell. I think Chuck Liddell yep. is your all American, have a beer, have a steak. Just, you know, if you're going to have someone next to you in a street fight, I'll take <laughs> Chuck Liddell, even over John Jones, yeah. you know, I'll yeah. take Chuck Liddell. Give me Chuck Liddell. He might get knocked out and then get back up and, and do what he has <laughs> yeah. to do. So I'm going to take Chuck Liddell in that. Um, I'm going to do two kind of unique ones next. I'm going to okay. do a female. Cause I think, Amanda needs to be on this because of what she's done for just the game in general. I think she's the most dominant UFC female fighter of all time, probably the most dominant female fighter of all time. Um, because she knocked out anyone else who could be in the conversation. Ronda Rousey, uh, Holly Holm, Misha Tate, uh, Cyborg. She knocked them all out and she made it look easy. And what I love about her story is early in her UFC career, she had like a two or three fight losing streak. Um, and mm. she had no cardio. She looked defeated and she reinvented herself and became what she became now. And I love the fact that she's a mom doing the things that she's doing. Obviously, I think she retired a little bit early. But if we're putting a Mount Rushmore up there, I'm going to have a female fighter on there because I think it's an important part of, of the UFC. And do I have one or two left? How many do I have? You got two left. You've only given us GS or Chuck Liddell and uh, Amanda Nunes. So you got so, two more. And you said you had one more non-conventional. One more non-conventional because he's a little guy, Mighty Mouse. Um, yeah. I think Demetrius was um, was changed the game in the, in the in the little guy space, right? The flyweights. It was a 
it was a, a weight class that the UFC wasn't sure if they were going to keep. And he was one of the most dominant champions across the board. I think he was pound for pound number one for quite some time, even when John Jones was there. I think he was battling that first spot. I think the flying arm bar with Ray Borg was probably one of the one of the most unique things that you could see in a fight, in a championship fight, to be able to do something that quickly and that technically sound. Um, and then also transition over to having a career outside of the UFC, I thought was was unique. So let's throw him on. And then lastly, because you had Connor, I'm going to put Habib on there. Um, I think that, you know, for undefeated, um, the way he would beat every single person that he fought in pretty dominant fashion was great. I will say that one of the only people that really gave him quite uh, quite a fight was a, a guy who's near and dear to my heart in cigars.com, uh, which was our first ever cigar partnership, uh, and that was Ally Quinta. So that's a great transition that I'm going to mess up because I am a Habib hater. And this is why, because when you're talking about the goat, I get the undefeated and the dominance and, oh, he, you know, he took Edson Barbosa's soul and all these different things. When you take everything into account, you also have to take into account who the people fought. So what is he, 29 and 0, 30 and 0? His first 20 fights were against Russian tomato cans, several of them he was related to. Okay, yep. so it's like, yes, he, he beat the brakes off Connor. He beat the brakes off uh, Dustin Poirier, even though he kind of had a guillotine there for a second. Beat the brakes off of Justin Gaethje. But it's like, okay, that's a very, very short run, albeit dominant, but very, very short run. So again, I'm a Habib hater. But yes, the Ally Quinta fight, especially considering the circumstances of that fight, you know, being, you know, a short notice thing. He's supposed to fight Tony Ferguson. And then I think that was like Max Holloway was brought in, but then they yep. stopped his weight cut. And then here's Ally Aquina. I think the fight was actually in, in New York. It may have been in Brooklyn or whatever, but that is interesting. So let's talk about Ally Aquina. Had a great career. He was always kind of a little bit of a meme because he's like, yeah, you know, I sell houses first. And then I also beat people up <laughs> in the octagon. And that was kind of his thing. But how did Ally Aquina get you away from, you know, the, the representing UFC fighters game and into the cigar game. And that truly was it. I, I ended my UFC career there, well, my UFC career, my managing of UFC yeah. career, right. <laughs> managing of athletes um, and transitioned over to that. Um, funny situation. I, many, many years ago, I had a business where I, I owned a lot of dot-com domains for professional athletes. And I would sell them to the professional athlete and uh, make a profit on it. Aliaquinta.com was one of them. Al okay. reached out in one capacity saying, hey, I think you own the domain. I've got a real estate business, right? I'd love to get it, et cetera, all of that. And I said, no, you know, no, no, no problem, Al. I'll, I'll, I'll just give it to you, right? Um, but by the way, like, you know, you ever thought about maybe doing a kind of a custom cigar? Because at this time, I said, you know what? I'm going to, everything that I've learned in this space, I'm going to make custom cigars for athletes. I'm going to do something super, super cool and unique. And it just so happens at that time, that's when it worked out. So we created the Ally Quinta Sold collection, which was Al laying on a beach, smoking a cigar with a sold sign that he was able to, you know, give to, uh, you know, all of his closing gifts and do that. Believe it or not, it was also his last fight when he fought, it was a tough one, but it was the fight when he fought, um, Name's escaping me. Just uh, name's escaping me. But he just fought. Um, he just I, fought I, again. I, it's escaping me too. Um, um, so he lost yeah, see that I, really, really yeah, quickly. Green, Bobby Green. He fought Bobby Green. Bobby Green. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and that was a tough one. But we released it right before that. 
got great interest. And that's really what put cigars.com on the map. That was the release cigar. Uh, and then from that, we had some other really great athlete transitions. Okay. So cigars.com, that is cigars with an S guys. If you've been listening to my show for any length of time, you heard whenever I announced that we did a cigars with you, oh, a cigar with you guys, we'll talk more about that. So, you know, how did you start, you know, what, what, you know, made you think of the name cigars with an S like, you know, you know, when you burned the ships and went full cigar, like, tell me, you know, how you did that. What was that story like? Cigars were always a part of my life. I think I smoked my first cigar at maybe 10 years old with my dad. It was always something that we did uh, as kind of a, a father-son thing. And I'd smoked them all throughout. After the athlete career, I mean, it was a long, exhausting career. I wanted to do something that I you know, actually truly, truly loved. And I'm also a tech entrepreneur too on the side. So I was kind of looking for an industry that was ripe for disruption. And if you think about the cigar industry, it's probably the most antiquated, old school, old guard uh, there is. And I said, you know what? I think I can bring kind of this fresh new energy to the cigar space, but I don't want to compete with the Fuentes. I don't want to compete with the Davidovs. I don't want to compete with um, you know any of any of the known brands. I want to create my own segment. I want to just do custom cigars. And I said, why not start with athletes, right? Because that's what I know. That's what I, I I love. And immediately we can have some good traction there. So started with Al, then transitioned over to PGA golfers, NASCAR drivers, uh, and then from there got into the charity aspect and Folds of Honor, which is how you and I uh, connected. Uh, to even start this, and you know, it's been it's been a blast ever since because what we're doing is really redefining the cigar space. If you're a brand, if you're a company, you know, whatever it might be, and you want to be able to put your stamp on a cigar and have that out, we have the capability for you to be able to do that, and we don't sacrifice quality. Okay, so let's talk about y'all's process. So from soup to nuts, because, you know, I talked about it a little bit in the intro, but, you know, you and I get connected through <clears throat> Folds of Honor, a charity that we love and we support. We support Folds of Honor, Oklahoma. You know, they they helped out with some stuff after my my cousin was killed, a police officer in the line of duty. I mean, and how you and I got connected, I don't know, even know if you remember this, I was getting connected to you because I ran out of Folds of Honor cigars in my humidor and my contact at Folds of Honor was like, hey, just get a hold of uh, Matt. And then as as the conversation went forward, it's like, there might be a connection here for the charitable stuff that Undaunted Life wants to do. And I never even thought making a custom cigar was a thing, but I got to say, I was blown away at the finished product because like, I don't know a whole lot about cigars. I just know that I like them, especially when I'm having them with whiskey, but the quality of the cigar was astonishing and apparent even to people that are cigar aficionados are like, there's something different here, but you, when you expect to get a custom thing, it's kind of like, if you go, Hey, you're going to get, you know, wallets with, you know, all your groomsmen's, you know, uh, initials emblazoned in on it. All those wallets are going to be cheapy wallets. They're going to be crappy wallets, you know, made by these companies just because the whole point is, you know, stamping the leather or whatever. Hmm. But when, when someone reaches out to you, Let's take them through the process. What does that look like? How do you get a cigar going? Who, how do you know how, how to make them? Like, cause people think if it's not Cuban, it's not good. If it's not Dominican, it's not good. And they're anyway, take, take me through it. We take it end to end. It's very limited. It's a very, very low lift for someone who wants that. Okay. And that's right. from two years plus of investing in uh, process and investing in raw material and investing in manufacturing um, from the cigar itself all the way to the label and the finished product in the box, right? So all of that is handled. We do it all in-house. 
Um, and it's all done in the United States, which is really, really important to us. It also adds more cost to it, but it's important to us because we want to control that process. But we also want to make sure that that things can stay here in the U.S. Uh, you know, as much as we possibly can control that. It matters to us, uh, and it will continue to matter to us. So, to your question, you say, "Hey, Matt, I'm undaunted life, right? I want to do a badass cigar. What do I need to do to you, right? What do I need to send to you?" We have a conversation. You let us know what kind of what shape you like, right? For the Undaunted Life one, we did a Toro. Let us know what kind of blend you want to do. We've got a couple different proprietary blends, ranging from mild, which are really easy to smoke, all the way to full, full body, which would knock you on your ass. Um, we ended up going with kind of a mild plus for this uh, particular one. Um, and then any special things on the label, right? Um, went back and forth with our design team, I think for um, you know a, a week or so there on making sure that the label represented exactly what it was that you wanted to present uh, to those who are going to be purchasing this cigar. Colors, embossments, um, messaging. And then the last piece of this is we try to always tie back all of this and some of the profits to a charitable organization. It started with Folds of Honor. We do it with almost every one of our cigars. And now we're doing this with your cigar and the Tim Tebow Rescue Team Foundation. So the process from end to end, a little bit of communication on our side. We take care of all the manufacturing and then ship it out. Which it was fantastic on our end because we were trying to figure out ways to fund anti-human trafficking operations. And I vetted a few organizations <clears throat> and I, you know, landed on the Tim Tebow Foundation. <clears throat> Excuse me. So thank you to Joby Martin, pastor of Church 1122 for introducing me to that team, because this is a team that is using every dime of what is donated specifically to preventing, you know, uh, trafficking from happening to rescuing people that are stuck in trafficking, including children, then also survivor care. So after these people are rescued in sometimes kinetic operations, it's not just, all right, you're, you're rescued. Good to go. There, there's a lot of care that needs to happen around those people. There's their spiritual health that needs to be taken care of physically health, uh, you know, their health and their emotional health, all that type of stuff is something that they, they take care of. And we were so happy that you guys were willing to match what we were going to take from our end of the profit to make sure that they go and do that. And we've already had conversations behind closed doors for future offerings where that, you know, that donation could even be bigger. So I, I love kind of that, that servant uh, heart that you guys have for these types of things. But let's talk a little bit about cigars in general. <clears throat> so I know quite a bit about whiskey. I'm a single malt scotch guy. I love Islas. Those are my favorite. Arbeg, Lagavulin, Bowmore, those types of things. And I know why. I know enough about whiskey that I know why I like a particular whiskey over another whiskey or something like that. But typically with cigars, I have no idea. I know about light, medium, bold. I typically like more of a full-bodied kind of bold cigar because if I'm having a Lagavulin 16, I don't want a wimpy cigar that's going to basically disappear in, in, in my mouth, have, have no taste to it, no finish. But talk to me about how a cigar novice could determine, okay, this is something that I like, or maybe I should try a Robusto as opposed to a Toro. Like, how do you even start to make those decisions without going to the, you know, cigar shop and spending a thousand bucks and just trying them all? I don't think, so for a novice smoker, I don't think you should put pressure on yourself to really try to understand a lot of the complexity of a cigar. So for me, a cigar is valuable because it's an investment of your time, whether it's a shitty cigar or a phenomenal cigar, right? Um, it's an investment in your time. So a lot of times it's about how it makes you feel, what you get to think about when you're smoking it, who you're talking to, um, the time that you're spending with that cigar. 
Now, with that being said, there's a couple things to look for on a cigar, right? Um, you don't want it to be um, too squishy, right? But you also don't want it to be too dry. You want there to be some type of um, middle ground on something like that. Smell matters, okay? If you're going to have taste, you know this with whiskey, like you want to have an aroma, a particular aroma that's appetizing to your palate when you're smoking, right? So it's really important to kind of smell that cigar and make sure it's something that you like. And then it all comes down to preference, right? Size matters <laughs> because it's about how much time you have to spend, right? We talked to, to um, your friend Dwayne about this. It's like, if you've got three hours or two hours and you want to just zonk out, get a longer body or a larger ring gauge, right? Ring gauge is the size, the diameter of it, right? Um, the body, the, the, the length of it all determines on that too. Goes all the way from the smallest type of one, which is like a Perla or something like a Cigarillo, all the way up to um, you know a Grandioso or a Sal you know a Salomon or something like that. So, if I would say if it's a if it's um, somebody who's a novice, the most common cigar to smoke would be a Robusto and then a Toro, right? Those are your two kind of smaller to mid size cigars. Those are the best ones to start with. And then generally speaking, um, if you go to a humidor, right, just ask about like a mild or a mild plus body. Those are generally the best ones to start with. But also get in there and kind of make your own determination. Smell them, feel them, touch them, do those types of things. And if you don't like a cigar, don't smoke it all the way through. Right. Oh, well, see, and that's another thing. Like I'm so Scots-Irish that when I start something, by God, I'm going to finish it. So yeah. if it's an awful movie, if it's a terrible book, even if it's a bad cigar or drink, I have to clean my plate. I have to clear the glass, all that type of stuff. Um, so one thing that I do, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, guys, I'm still recovering. The voice is getting better, but you know, it's not always perfect. Um, one thing that I can say when I open the cigars box, the, the Undaunted Life cigars that you did, which, you know, surprising me with the, our logo kind of burned into the top of the box. That was incredible. But as soon as I opened the box, the smell was overwhelming. And I mean that in a positive way, because I've opened other boxes of cigars before and it's just, eh, it smells like cigars, but it's not like it didn't kind of overwhelm and kind of fill the space. And that's the same thing when I used to do whiskey tastings before the pandemic is it's like, there are certain whiskeys that you drink as soon as you swallow them, they just disappear. And when you're drinking a whiskey, there's nose palate and finish, and you need all three to have a good, fantastic whiskey. And so if you drop an ice cube in it, you take the nose away. And if it's not a good whiskey, there's no, there's no finish to it. So it's those whiskeys that linger on your nose, linger on your tongue and linger on your palate and slowly spread. makes a difference. I guess it seems like the the same thing is true for cigars and that's why they they pair so well. The one thing that you might do before we we wrap up today, I want to kind of know what are some common mistakes that novices or even people that think they're advanced cigar smokers make. I mean, for years, I didn't toast my cigars. And so toasting is where you basically mm -hmm. take the the torch and you you kind of lightly toast the outside or the, the end of it before you ever take a puff. And how it was explained to me is if you just put the flame right to it and, and you know, you know, suck the the air the fire through, you're actually singeing the tobacco leaves that are in the middle there because they haven't kind of been prepped for the process of what you're doing. So that's something that I learned. But when it comes to, to cutting or smoking or preparing or anything of that with cigars, what are some common mistakes that you've seen? To add to what you had just mentioned, um, I personally like to light my cigars with, um, with long match boxes and long matches mm. because sometimes the butane itself on a torch lighter 
actually can change the complexity and the taste of the cigar itself. Especially if it's not a great cigar, it absolutely 100%. You'll just it'll it'll uh, feel like you're just like a, a burnt marshmallow in a sense, right? Mm. Um, the entire time, which is really not appetizing, and you can't fix that. If it happens. There goes your cigar. Okay. So I would say if you have the possibility of doing a long match, do that. that. That's probably your safest bet because you can have that right up to it. Secondly, I would say from a cutting standpoint, sometimes novices cut too deep, right? If you've cut too deep off the cap, um, then the cigar will unravel. You'll taste it in your mouth and it won't be an appetizing experience for you. So you definitely don't want to do that. There are multiple ways to cut. The cigar that we did for Undaunted Life is a Toro. I personally love to V-cut uh, that particular cigar. Yeah. I think you yeah. get the you get control over um, kind of the smoke. It lasts a little bit longer. It's a little bit better on the palate, but that doesn't mean you can't cut it guillotine straight or punch cut it. Um, that Toro is a great size, and the way that it's 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 built with the binder and wrapper and all of that, it's going to be just fine on however you want to do it. Just don't cut too much. Again, because if you cut too much, you can't turn that back around. Um, and then lastly, what I would say is, I think it's really, really important from a cigar standpoint to do your best if you're an advanced, like starting to become like going from, from novice to, to the next level. Do your best to try to pair cigars with things like because it might change the, the complexity and the taste, the overall profile of something. If you have it with a coffee or if you have it with a beer or a whiskey or a scotch. But in addition to that, to try to start retrohaling. Retrohaling is the only way that you actually get flavor on a cigar. Right. So you see sometimes these flavor profiles of vanilla hickory, cedar, right? You're never going to get that flavor profile if you don't know how to retrohale. And retrohaling is, is difficult. It's breathing it out of your nose, right? Um, it's very difficult, but it's something that once you master and you try, um, it changes a cigar for you completely. So as you progress into that from novice into intermediate and even advanced, those are really important things to try to do. So can we set up a training uh, time for you to teach me how to retrohale? Because I've never even heard of such a thing. So can yeah. we hook that up? I, I, we should do we should do Zoom meetings where we where we smoke a couple of cigars and and talk about this and talk about well, some hey, SEO. <laughs> hey, we we've we've got some uh, some meetings coming up, so maybe we can make them uh, make them cigar meetings. But man, I really appreciate all the time that you've spent kind of explaining these things to us, kind of giving us some different preferences and all that. I'm a V cut guy as well, I like that. But even me, like what's funny is I'll follow my own sword for the photo shoot that we did for the Undaunted Life cigars. I was too focused on you know my wife; she was taking the pictures because she's a professional product photographer, and here I am trying to focus on doing the whole process slowly, and then I. I cut off so much of the end of my cigar. And so any of the pictures that you see of the cigar itself, it's the one that, that Dwayne cut because he cut it like a pro and I'm over here cutting it like I was cutting it with a meat cleaver. So yeah, you know, we all make mistakes. It happens, but man, we've covered a lot of ground in this. Thanks for letting me go uh, behind the scenes on all your stuff that you did in the, the world of sports and the world of cigars. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? That's it, Kyle. Appreciate all you do. And um, it's a great cause that you, uh, you know, push the cigar towards. I'm excited to uh, be a part of it. Matt Dodge, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, Scott.
There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed our time with Matt Dodge. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. I've got two links for you today. I've got a link specifically to the Cigars website where you can check out the Undaunted Life Cigar and then also our landing page from our website. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song per Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Facedown Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.